um, Comparative Media Studies Department Colloquium, which is also supported by the Boston Cinema and Media Seminar. Hopefully some of you are here from that group. Um, uh, the, the talk today is also supported by the Civic Art Lecture Series, uh, which uh, is run in part by Jim Parity in our department, and also by uh, the lab, my lab, Global Media Technologies and Cultures Lab. So Heidi's talk has a lot of sponsors and interest from the, the area. So I'm just going to give a brief introduction to Heidi, and then we'll get on with the talk today. Um, Heidi Wasson is Professor of Film and Media in the School of Cinema at Concordia University in Montreal. She's the author and, or editor of four books, including the award-winning Museum Movies, Inventing Film Studies with Lee Grieveson, Useful Cinema with Charles Ackland, and Cinema's Media Industrial Complex, which just came with Lee Grieveson, which just came out, what, last year, Heidi? Um, really interesting book. I actually read that book, and it's fascinating. That's Cinema's Media Industrial Complex. She's also the founder of Field Notes, which is an oral history project on the history of film and media studies and the recipient of the Distinguished Service Award from the Society for Cinema and Media Studies. And her current research, which she's, some of which she's presenting today, investigates the design and expansive use of film projectors by industrial, military, and government sectors, exploring the transformation of cinema from an en entertainment machine into a highly diversified display and performance device. So she'll be presenting some of this new work today, and it's great to have the occasion to engage with um, her as she's finishing this up. The book manuscript, I think, is going to be completed in the next few months. So any questions and comments that people have today here will probably be really helpful. Um, and I just want to, again, say thanks to all of you for being here and to Heidi as well. So thanks, Heidi. Thank you. <clears throat> thank you, Lisa. Can you hear me in the back if I talk at this level? OK. Um, and thank you uh, to the multiple and many sponsors of this talk. I didn't know I was such an expensive date. Um, it's, it's very nice to be here. And it's very nice to have this spring day, because in Montreal, we get a day like this maybe in July. So spring hasn't quite sprung um, there. So it's a double treat to be here. Um, so the research presumes the research I want to present to you today presumes that thinking about the history of film should entail full dialogue with a broader family of ideas and debates brought to bear on the more general umbrella of media. So in doing so, I build on claims such as those made by historians like Lisa Gittleman, who assert that we have much to gain by thinking about media as assemblages, shifting coherences of technologies, protocols, and practices for which change is neither linear nor uniform through time and across contexts. This basic historiographical approach to media allows us to ask crucial questions about how particular media evolved, but also how they evolved in relation and as integral to each other. So I take great inspiration from a lot of William Eurekio's work, so I'm very touched that he could be in the room. And it was an article uh, in which he, he basically, he did something, I, I don't know if he understood how polemical it was, but he, he essentially suggested, well, maybe cinema is just under-evolved television. And to film scholars, that's, um, it's provocative to say the least. But I, I take great inspiration from that kind of work, the kind of work that he's long been doing, 
because what it does in a cheeky kind of way is um, require us to, to disarticulate the idea of an ahistorical cinematic apparatus and pursue the idea that the movie theater, in this instance, can be thought of as an impediment to rather than the central pillar of how we think about the history of cinema. So in a way, theaters are my bad object for, for, the, for the next 45 minutes, uh, anyhow. So to explore this, I understand the history of film as the history of a shifting family of technologies, protocols, and practices that did not emerge at a single time or place or settle as one coherent thing, but rather shifted and transformed throughout the 20th century. And this material is drawn, as Lisa mentioned, from a book that I am finishing uh, imminently on the history of portable film projectors. The geography for this project is um, American, and I'm focusing on the later teens through to the 1950s. This project maps the conditions for what I am claiming is a significant, highly visible, everyday technological platform, one that was widespread and broadly, deeply institutionalized. Its existence and importance have been overshadowed by its fancier, louder, more spectacular iteration, which looked something like this, the movie theater. So I ask, what might we learn from writing a history of film through the lens of portability, a media form known as one of the least portable of the 20th century? So just a few words about portability and how I'm understanding that. So while we know that our, in our contemporary moment, media can fly, orbit, and float, it is also true that media move with our bodies. We carry phones, MP3 players, computers. We reach for them in our pockets, purses, backpacks, briefcases. Um, and as John Cusack taught us almost 40 years ago, we also hold them high above our heads. Not just devices, but also content, movies, television programs, music, is similarly transported on miniature drives, played while perched on a lap in our hand, wrapped around our heads, sometimes dangling from our ears. But this intensely embodied human scale of media movement was not inevitable or preordained. It evolved over years, catalyzed in fits and starts by technical innovations, institutional dynamics, and cultural practices. With regards to media history, portability has a complex and highly differentiated past manifesting variously across different media forms. Portability is, in other words, a highly relative concept. At first level, We've tended to talk about a particular medium as portable because of a physical property, such as its weight or its size, responding to the basic and enduring question, can I carry it? Media design practices have long articulated media to the body. For instance, carrying cases, handles, straps, and belt clips are integral to our media, signaling the enduring imbrication of our devices, not only with our eyes and our ears, but our torsos, our shoulders, our hands, heads, and fingers. These imbrications are enduring and had to be built, and in some cases, sold to us. So I just, just to give you a sense of what I've been digging up and how I'm stringing it together, I just want to give you a few images of other media that have been portable, articulated to the hand, the shoulder, carrying cases. This is a, a photograph for a portable uh, film projector, 1947 portable phonograph, circa 1935, with a nice vintage leather carrying case behind it. This is a great study for portable radio um, during the war. Uh, and it's actually a fascinating study because it, 
it walks you through uh, the discussions they were having about, well, why would anybody want to listen to radio while you move? Why would they carry it? What would it be for? Where would you put it? And so this is actually a little a series of photographs about, well, you could put it in a pocket. You could carry it around your shoulder and other such things. Um, uh, portable, portable radio, portable TV with handles and so on. Extending Marshall McLuhan's lasting insight that media can be understood as extensions of our physical and sensing selves, inversely, media can also be thought of as part of our everyday load, adding heft, weight, even a particular silhouette uh, or gait to our self-carriage. Equally important is the size and weight of content. Does it come in a discrete book, as a vinyl disc, a metal tin, a plastic box, maybe a digital flow? So in addition to bodies, uh, the recent work on infrastructure studies, so I gesture to Lisa and Nicole Staraslisi, you know who I mean, I can't say her name ever, on media infrastructure reminds us that media movement or signal traffic in their terms requires what are frequently unrecognized but significant material and geopolitical systems that are constitutive of foundational media dynamics. And before the electronic and digital networks that enable contemporary practices of and ideas about movement, which we tend to call mobility, portability is a funny term, almost quaint in a way, uh, there were cognate infrastructures which similarly enabled media to move, roads, shipping lanes, railway tracks. And as James Carey long ago noted, there's a shared history of communication and transport manifesting in shared terminology and metaphoric slides across terms that help us to make sense of the relationships between the movement of things and their meaning. Portability provides a salient example of this enduring conjuncture. There's a shared etymological root with terms used to denote movement in actual and imminent capacities. For instance, the use of the term port to signify hubs and nodes of sizable physical transfer, shipping ports, ports of entry, ports of call. More recently, and evolved from this infrastructural use, the term also helps to name the transfer of content and interoperability of electronic and digital signals, facilitating particular kinds of media traffic. Devices often come with many ports, allowing other devices to become interoperable and constitutive of hybridity. Crucially, port ability, or the ability to port, can lead away from concepts of site and medium specificity and toward adaptability and multiple functions and phenomenologies. And it is this double sense of the term port uh, that I want to enact here when thinking about portable film technologies focusing on devices that can move at a particular scale, but also can be thought of as hubs for a range of images, sounds, performances, and functions. So portable also signals as much an imminent capacity as a fact. Something can be portable without being ported, for instance. So just as the concept of port opens up the possibilities of a busy and dynamic intersection, it's also important to consider portability through the lens of legal or regulatory frameworks where and how a particular device might be purchased, installed, operated, transported, are all signposts of complex systems that shape and direct the ways media become recognizable to us and don't move as much as they do. For the history of moving images, the related concept of access is also really important to portability and has been especially an um, important question throughout that history. So like with histories of video, foregrounding the foundational changes to how moving images and sounds circulate differently than before video, copying, copyright, and its counterimage as informal and pirated materials are classic cases of this, as we see in Brian Larkin's work and Ramon Lobato's work. The portability of tapes and their players has created a complex ecology of practices. 
In addition to the obstructions of particular media to informality, or cultural institutions have also long played important roles in limiting portability, media movement, and access. So I have a <coughs> funny, I think it's funny, <laughs> um, example. So if you take art museums, uh, they often operate to constrain movement despite well over a century and a half of technological reproducibility. A good deal of the art world remains predicated on creating value based on concepts of singularity, originality, which enshrine scarcity and hence a degree of unportability. So take, for instance, the Mona Lisa. Otherwise small, light in weight, the image itself measures 30 inches by 21 inches. They are understood as, ex the Mona Lisa is inextricably linked to an architectural destination, uh, the Louvre, uh, to a particular geopolitical context, Paris, France. We might also add the tourist, insurance, and security regimes that have evolved around art and its pricelessness, respectively. With its frame and security box, the, Mona, the, the painting weighs in at 200 pounds. So I don't know how much the tourists weigh, or the Louvre for that matter, but you take my point. A po important art is apparently very heavy, making what might otherwise be a carry-on painting into something else anchored in place by architecture, institutional rituals, insurance companies, tourist economies, and deep nationalisms. So one last uh, thought on portability. I want to emphasize that in this project, portability does not mean good or bad. In certain instances, portability has been instrumental in progressive democratizations of entrenched institutions, and in others, it has led to tools which further geopolitical asymmetries and injustices. And I would also, again, refer to Lisa's work as a great example of this drones can do many things. To be sure, portability is relative and complex, helping us to distinguish among more material dynamics, but also discursive ones as well. Portability plainly looks different across time and context, making it a productive and notably historical concept, naming a set of potentially dynamic properties that help us to think through the ways in which media design, modes of conveyance, movement, and adaptability have come to be made meaningful in cultural, technological, and institutional histories. And so in a way, uh, I, I guess I, what I'm suggesting is a kind of dispositif of portability. So for particular media, the concept of portability has been far less salient. Take, for instance, whoops, that's my deep nationalism. Hold on. OK. <laughs> Crazy French. Um, uh, the history of cinema. The notably unportable movie theater has long played a key role in our understanding of why and where we watch movies. Frequently, uh, is frequently used to distinguish cinema from other moving image media. Citing the movie theater as the de facto place that cinema happens has long been a conventional assumption in film history and, importantly, film theory. And similarly tends to be a key marker of more recent media change. So histories of video and digital streaming tend to begin with an assumption that the movie theater, as much as celluloid, has been displaced, liquidating any coherent idea of cinema in the present. So you hear a lot of uh, phrases like post-cinema and so on. With regard to film history, there can be no doubt that the theater's darkened and seductive spaces, housing big screens, multi-dimensional sounds, and often controlled climates has been central to the rise of film as an industrial, artistic, and popular form. Yet, I suggest, our preoccupations with the theater have caused us to overlook, which was, uh, overlook what was by far the most common and numerous iteration of projected film, the portable kind. 
So what follows disarticulates the theater as a determining element of the so-called cinematic apparatus and continues the questions raised by other media historians. And I, I also lean a lot on Anna McCarthy and uh, Amanda Lotz, who've each written about television in, in a way taking apart one of its core constituents and then rethinking how it shifts. Anna McCarthy uh, assuming television was not domestic in the 50s and Amanda Lotz looking at how distribution changes to television have transformed how it appears, how we watch it, and so on. So similarly, I ask, what happens if movies didn't primarily happen in theaters? What, when, and where was cinema? So I began this research thinking that portable projectors were elements of subcultural and otherwise marginal practices, operating as the somewhat sad or inferior cousin, the negative, the utilitarian image of the movie theater. These low-tech, low-res, low-impact, do-it-yourself machines, when mentioned at all, in received histories were often situated as the negative, literally as non-theatrical, which is the term that's often associated with them. In the emerging scholarship on amateur, industrial, educational, and governmental cinema, portable projectors are often implied, but incidental to other primary questions. But I contend that calling portable projectors non-theatrical is a little bit like calling the internet non-televisual. In other words, it names with a metaphor of absence something that was uh, an unbelievably fulsome presence. So, for instance, from World War II onward, portable film projectors handily and significantly exceeded movie theaters in raw numbers. So in the United States, by 1959, portable projectors outnumbered commercial movie theaters by a factor of 259 to 1. These devices only continued to proliferate, and by 1969, they outnumbered movie theaters by a factor of 650 to 1. And then by 1980, the, they continued to proliferate quite rapidly throughout the 70s. Uh, they, uh, the ratio was 1,000 to 1. These numbers make portable projection a basic fact of film and media history and set a foundational uh, capacities that invite exploration. Moreover, the fact of this viewing infrastructure also plainly complicates the status of the movie theater as the historically situated and de facto site of American film, and likely elsewhere. So I want to say it's, it's beginning to be quite clear that portable projectors, small gauge projectors, were more important elsewhere, where the theatrical model didn't have quite the same kind of hold, and these more nimble devices actually became the dominant mode by which films of all sorts circulated. A project yet to, that's part two, that'll come after this one. Um, so neglecting to consider portable projectors as elements of film and media history is to overlook the most common, accessible, quotidian means, as well as the most coercive and expressly radical means by which films have been shown, watched, heard, and engaged with during the post-war period and for a large part of the 20th century. To ignore these devices would also be to overlook the ways in which they normalized moving image and sounds, which became less events or evenings out and more elemental aspects of a whole way of mediated life. In this sense, portable devices demonstrate key continuities from cinema's past to our digital present, more than radical breaks from it. So the larger book project argues that portable projectors comprise a foundational technical infrastructure and family of devices that are notably distinct from cinema's theatrical foundations. These small machines were highly adaptive constituted by a family of devices and their systems. They operated in varied spaces. They worked across a range of performance and playback scenarios. 
portable projectors were not simply oddities, occasional gadgets, or dusty basement junk. They were not merely, and this is really important, domestic playthings or a hobbyist's toy. Nor should they be understood as a failed or substandard method by which to recreate the seamless illusion of a professionalized theatrical presentation apparatus, like some work on amateur cinema has uh, hypothesized. Like the technologies we are more familiar with today, they were part of a deliberate technological bargain. The circumvention of expensive, high-tech, professionalized, big aesthetics, and an embrace of low-res accessibility, control, and everyday amplification. In striking this bargain, the most basic terms about why movies got made, what they looked like, what they did, changed a widely visible element of an expanding small media ecology, enabling a myriad of uncharted but widespread and influential protocols and practices. So there's a, a simple premise at the heart of my project uh, that seeing films has been a peculiar kind of proposition one that has entailed a complex series of technical, institutional, and cultural shifts that are in the first order distinct from also the dynamics of making movies. By focusing on a specific family of viewing devices, we can denaturalize some of the long-standing assumptions that have shaped, shaped dominant understandings of film watching. These portable devices created an iteration of cinema that shed any singular or necessarily coherent architectural, industrial, or regulatory weight undergirding the movie theater. And instead, they extolled notably distinct virtues, including lightness of weight, adaptability, ease of use, affordability, repairability, and perhaps most important of all, programmability. These devices help us to understand the myriad ways in which images and sounds secured on celluloid transformed into mediated encounters across a range of institutions and sites. And importantly, in the US, these encounters were rarely enabled by the dominant vertically integrated profit-seeking film industry. They did not rely on a mass-paying, pleasure-seeking audience. Rather, films were frequently and regularly presented to small audiences, private individuals, many of whom gathered as institutional subjects, as students, soldiers, scientists, workers, managers, uh, artists, citizens, and also, I should add, as anti-institutional subjects, so as dissidents, as, as racists, as activists. Sometimes you might include artists there as well. Equally important, this new infrastructure for film viewing created the conditions in which a broader range of films became possible. In other words, I'm arguing that because there was this viewing apparatus, more kinds of films could be made. Educational, industrial, military, amateur, artistic, pornographic, and so on. This technological condition of possibility satisfied what film theorists, critics, and filmmakers had been calling for since the 1920s. What figures like John Grierson then called the future of cinema a viewing system that was not beholden to a single industry, a government, or a controlled and professionalized presentation apparatus. Millions of portable projectors and many more millions of circulating film prints available at mid-century in small gauge format index a firm and clear common sense about the realization of exactly this. So what I want to do with the time I have left is highlight I've distilled three, three takeaways or three major th insights I consider important for the project and distilled them into a kind of encyclopedia format. So I want to like, present to you what I think are three salient takeaways from the broader project. So one, that portable film technologies tell us something about the business of film. And what they do is remind us that for too long, Hollywood um, has stood in for something that was in fact a complex and expansive technical system that entailed more than movies. Two, portability tells us something about the expanded functions and sites for film technologies. 
Uh, and here, what I'll do is talk a little bit about industrial and business films. And three, portable film technology show us that film has a long and deep set of enduring multimedial relations throughout its history. They didn't stop when movie theaters emerged or the film industry was established. They continued right alongside it. And in many ways, I'm arguing they exceeded that in all kinds of ways. Okay. So, insight number one, the business of film. The first film cameras and projectors were de facto without any kind of permanent home, and hence designed to be moved. Film technologies were, in other words, born portable. Yet received film histories presume that portability and itinerance in fairly short order became relatively insignificant once the coherent aesthetic conventions, business models, and retail outposts, what I'm calling movie theaters, formed and became what we call Hollywood, which took about 20 years roughly to form. A more genealogical approach shows that the history of film technologies is far more complex. Key here is that portability endured throughout film history and alongside these other forms of settlement. Equally important is that as portable technologies consolidated and began to ascend, they did so not in opposition to the commercial film industry. Um, in fact, counterintuitively, small film technologies were in fact an effect of Hollywood's consolidation and vitality. In short, throughout the interwar period, the success of the commercial film industry was yielding a technical base that fed the innovation and expansion of all film technologies, not only those used by the studios. So just to be clear, American studio moguls were themselves not interested in portable projectors. Movie theaters were too important for their primary business model. They secured distribution chains, steady locations, uh, and repeat, repeat clientele. By the mid to late teens, movie theaters began to operate as ornate, high-tech ceremonial shrines uh, to commercial cinema in the guise of picture palaces. Sorry. Controlling theaters also helped the industry to control the circulation of film and its potentially limitless reproductive capacities. In other words, the film industry really only liked film copies insofar as they enabled the growth of a highly controlled market movie theaters helped them to control that market and those copies. Think of theaters as like a bulwark to circulation. Um, a little bit like the art museum functions uh, as well for art. By the second half of the 1910s, the American film industry had grown and consolidated sufficiently that its various elements were establishing sub-organizations to help facilitate coordination across its dispersed constituents. The studio's technical base, or its R&D arm, if you will, was by and large organized outside its walls. It outsourced technical innovation. As Lucy Marzola has recently reminded us, Hollywood was a client, a procurer of goods and services, as much as a maker of movies. It outsourced its technical infrastructure to the chemical, the optical, electrical, and photographic industries like Eastman Kodak, Bell & Howell, DuPont, all of which had really significant war contracts, by the way, which is a bit of a side, a side note. Um, these companies obviously retained diversified interests across their fields. So they were, they, Hollywood was a major client, but it wasn't the only client. Their understanding of the film industry was not confined to entertainment, of course, but to thinking expansively about its technical base and the applications of the whole of that base and its bits and what that might entail. So when these engineers and technical industries came together under the organizing rubric of the Society for Motion Picture Engineers, which is also a part of the history of engineering and its rise in professionalization, they discussed all kinds of things that directly but also indirectly affected 
uh, moving image technologies in the broadest sense. As such, one of the earliest acts of this organization, which was an outgrowth of Hollywood, was to define portability and to identify shared standards to help expedite the development of a consumer-grade portable projector. Under the shadow of French innovations, the American discussion entailed a drive towards technical standards. So what film gauge? How heavy would the machine be? Uh, how big and bright would the image have to be? Most important of all, though, was the matter of flammability. That is, portability was defined primarily by the ability to not catch fire. Uh, film had long been printed on nitrate film stock, which was highly flammable. And as such, film shows were quickly regulated by public safety laws. Such regulations focused on the movie theater, which through the 20s was getting bigger and bigger, but they also logically entailed that portable shows, which persisted throughout this period, required precautionary measures. Um, so you might have, say, a 50-pound film projector, but you couldn't use it unless you came with a 500-pound fireproof booth, which starts to challenge the limits of the definition of portability. And for those of you with a deep sense of irony, um, you'll notice the, the, the fabulous cruel chemistry of controlling a nitrate fire by using an asbestos <laughs> booth. Um, something to ponder. Uh, portable machines were also counterindicated for threats like fire. In other words, the smaller the metal projector's box, the hotter it got from the projector's bulb, the more likely was fire. Demands to make the image larger or brighter, also more heat. And so small, nimble projectors were a kind of Faustian bargain. The smaller the box, the more dangerous. The brighter the image, the more dangerous. Industry definitions of portability thus entailed considerations of weight and ease of use and affordability. But among all of these, um, they were subsumed, these other variables subsumed by the widely agreed upon necessity that it not catch fire. Portability in film's technical history is first and foremost then an electrochemical innovation aimed at managing heat and effectively expediting the use of acetate or non-flammable film stock, a technical innovation that the commercial film industry would not adopt for another 30 years. This was critical as it helped to circumvent the weight of industrial and professionalized practices, licensed projectionists, theaters that met insurance safety requirements, and also government regulation, censorship and municipal safety laws, which often use flammability as a thin disguise for safeguarding control of film presentation. For their part, engineers and designers understood the drive towards portability as potentially new market for their products, which would enable moving images to address the cultural and commercial functions being addressed by other media. Film, to their minds, could replace or perhaps complement or compete with books, newspapers, magazines, as well as other modes of public presentation and display. These devices were also partly understood as a rejection of the movie theater's growing size and technical complexity. As such, the small, affordable film projector proposed a very different model for how film technologies might operate and become interwoven with other more nimble and adaptable media ecologies. So contemporary film and media industry studies tend to be highly attuned to the multi-platformed world we now inhabit. The media industry is today understood as more nimble, multi-layered, a jumble of patents, processes, platforms, and content interwoven across media and a complex web of technological change. Likewise, this expanded understanding of the film industry in the teens and 20s helps us to better understand the way the American film industry rose, not just as a maker of movies, but as interdependent with a complex technical, sorry, I'm having trouble with my paper, ecology that thrived in relation to it. This yielded not a singular or coherent industrial vision, but a complex one with its own internal contradictions.
Okay, part two. The film is a business machine. Frequently, people presume that portable or small film gauges were primarily for amateur use in the home and from the 20s to the 50s, and that smaller, affordable cameras were the key innovation opening up the field of amateur filmmaking. But drawing on scholars of television and video, it's clear that changes to distribution and display have long played a crucial role in media transformations quite distinct from technologies of making. And the same holds true for film. While to a degree intertwined, you cannot show a film without the basic fact of its existence or its making with the camera, projectors operated by very distinct logics. That is to say, portable projectors had their own technological footprint and therefore created distinct patterns of circulation and film performance that cannot be understood by resort to thinking about cameras alone. Industry sales figures show that throughout the history of portable formats, 8 and 16 millimeter projectors significantly outsold cameras. The most developed of these projection footprints in the 1930s was built not by the film industry or amateur filmmakers, but by other major American industries, cars, car companies, oil companies, farm equipment, electrical utilities. And as the growing body of scholarship on industrial film is showing, these were the early adapters, if you will, of film, less as entertainment, but more as a business machine. This was not a specifically American, but it was international in its development, yielding a range of film uses that included things like employee training and morale films, internal communications, retail and public relations films. Uh, by the 1930s, film was part of this increasingly complex industrial communications and display ecology that was a new way of presenting what American industry did, what it was for, why it was good, according to them. So nowhere were these ecologies more spectacular than at the industrial and world fairs that transpired throughout the decade, culminating in the 1939 World's Fair in New York. This fair was called the World of Tomorrow, and in the context of the rising European war, its consumerist utopianism market as distinctly American. Nonetheless, it stands as an index to the powerful modes of address being forged by American industry and state, summed up by the then new term industrial showmanship industrial showmanship. Public relations experts and industrial designers increasingly thought about industrial address and display as opportunities for putting on a show, turning uh, oil uh, into entertaining dance films, um, uh, and also uh, turning cars into opportunities to retell fairy tales. This is a retelling of um, Cinderella. Um, the fair functioned as a kind of experimental stage where industrial designers crafted theme rides, immersive mediated environments. This is the communications hall, uh, a sketch for the communications hall um, at one of the pavilions. Um, 3D films. Uh, these were great um, souvenir 3D glasses in the shape of a car hood. Uh, Multi-screen projections and other kinds of live or recorded presentations. This is the Kodak pavilion. So this is a little side note. Um, it's, it's been a fun project because it, it, you know, you, nothing's ever a straight line. Um, Fred Waller designed, was commissioned to design the Kodak Pavilion, which, which was a kind of early immersive environment of constantly moving color, Kodachrome uh, slides. So there was, these were still images which moved a lot. Um, and then during the war, Waller, so he works for American Industry, during the war he's commissioned, he designs gunnery training systems using three, at first 16 millimeter projectors and then it evolves to 35 to train uh, pilots. So this is an example of what it looks like from the, tr uh, the pilot's view. And then after the war, with military assistance, 
he is one of the primary innovators for Cinerama. Um, and then even weirder, incidentally, he's also the, uh, um, uh, he introduced or invented water skis, which is why in Cinerama you see all these images um, of water skis. It's just it's one of those weird stories. Okay, back to the fair. The fair boasted 34 purpose-built movie theaters, uh, constituting an unusually dense clustering of films and their spaces. These theaters showed hundreds of documentary, industrial, publicity, and advertising films, often continuously from morning until night. At the fair, many more moving images, so in addition to those 34 purpose-built movie theaters, moving images appeared in venues that could in no way be deemed theatrical, but instead made use of walls, floors, ceilings, small booths, and boxes as sites for images big and small, continuous and discontinuous, silent and not. Like, you know, some of them you could push, some of them just played, some of them were rear projections, some were very small, some were very big. Such film display device technologies were integral to these broader developments earlier mentioned and throughout the interwar period. They were linked not just to an emphasis like um, uh, Democratics around Fred Turner's book, um, talks about, but also to productive consumerisms and uh, an idea of industrial benevolence. I just skipped a whole page, but that's okay. Ecologies of small media, section number three. So this is the third and the final insight I want to leave you with. The ability to port for one media machine to link to another is a crucial part of the story about portable projectors. While there were many, many examples of projectors that simply showed a film, silent or sound, there were also many, many devices that played with the multiple relations of projected moving images and sounds that were ported in or simply played nearby, linking the portable projector to live and recorded sounds, small, hidden and retractable screens that reflect or emit light, and microphones, which is another kind of crucial part of the way projectors evolved, that amplify the voice. Here, projectors became hybrid devices designed to be highly adaptable and open to a kind of media ad hocery and improvisation. So I just want to give you a few examples of some of those um, things that I've found. So this is uh, from a 1941 issue of Popular Mechanics. It's a very futurist idea, uh, a modern marvel of intermedial engineering, uh, dubbed the, if you're ready for it, uh, the Phonocine Radio Recordograph. Uh, the device merged a record player, a phonograph, radio, amplifier, sound film projector, and screen. It could record sounds, but also play them, summoning them from vinyl records, celluloid, or capturing them from the air. It could play a film on a small screen, which sat atop the device, which you can see here. Uh, still years before television had proven itself commercially viable in the U.S., the Phonocine Recordograph promised a highly integrated home entertainment unit, which the magazine dubbed Concentrated Entertainment, for its ability to bring sounds and images together in one magnificent media machine. The sizable device also offered media storage and a host of input ports. In other words, even at this size and multifunction, further adaptability was anticipated. It was designed to be a morphing machine. Weighing in at 800 pounds, it took an amateur radio enthusiast a year to build it and design in his basement. The machine might be best understood as amateurism gone awry or madcap tinkering, or perhaps even we can just call it science fiction. Yet 
There it was in a mass-circulated do-it-yourself magazine, discussed alongside ads for water-going pontoon bikes, training gentlemanly dogs, and homemade card tables. There was a kind of normalcy to it as much as there was a futurism to it. Um, it would be an odd one-off if it weren't for the fact that other similar devices designed for aspiring showmen and much lighter in weight uh, were also being designed and sold during the period. I present to you the Victor 40, announced two years earlier by the Victor Animatograph Company uh, as an example. Known as the Atta Unit, in production from 1939 until 1941, the projector espoused a default multimedia modularity. It could be purchased with a range of lenses, allowing varied projector placement closer to or further from the screen. It might be accompanied by a record player, a radio, a phonograph, a sound recording unit, multiple speakers, and an auxiliary amplifying unit. And they were all designed to match, too. Um, the device invited users to create their own live or recorded soundtracks. It allowed them to turn the volume up or down to make the image bigger or smaller. There's a kind of elasticity built into the, the model. The company claimed that the projector had the ability to play at different speeds and to be stopped in order to project a single film frame in suspended form. One of the really interesting through lines to the, the research, the stuff I've been finding through the course of research is, is the, there's a through line about stopping the image. In other words, from the beginning when they're talking about portability, they're talking about a multifunction machine that doesn't just play a film, but stops it. So, and then the question of how do you stop the image and why and for how long becomes one of the primary design challenges for the projector throughout. Um, the ADA unit enabled a degree of control over what I call the key vectors of projected film. So control over size, speed, volume, illumination, image clarity. It was also presumed as a projector to be incomplete sold to be built and used according to need, desire, or whim by adding other related component parts. Sold as an adaptable machine for public presentations and performances, the projector here operated as a kind of base unit designed to be moved, carried, rearticulated to a range of other media machines, spaces, and uses. Unlike the bulky Phonocine radio, radio recordograph, uh, but much like other portable screens and projectors, the Victor 40 came in a case integral to its design. A sturdy handle allowed it to be carried by would-be projectionist hand with ease, so back to that articulation to the body. An inventory of small film devices from this period could continue. From the 1920s <coughs> onward, projectors came in many styles with different degrees of function. And just another uh, example vis-a-vis uh, -vis the question of sound. After the war, in addition to the long-standing uh, pairing of microphones to projectors, uh, innovations in magnetic recording and playback led to projectors that became sound recording instruments as well. Projectors enabled users to record, erase, improve, or change the sound. And you could also strip a silent film if you wanted to. You could send it off and have a magnetic strip put on, and then you could then record your own sound over it. These devices were marketed to teachers, salesmen, managers, clergy, and also the military. Some were sold as cosmopolitan business machines, uh, readily able to bridge linguistic and other barriers. And I like, I like this one a lot. The machine wins. It, the, the rhetoric of the ad is it's, it's not a cosmopolitan urban lady. It's not a safari hunter. It's the machine that can do all these things for you. Um, uh, <coughs> these devices further emphasized ports or interoperability and also were sold as home devices as well. 
often using ontologies of liveness and individual private dress. So this is actually an ad for a film projector, which looks exactly like a lot of the ads for television during this period. The idea of bringing the world into the home in a, a fidelitous fashion, experiential, and kind of new ontology, if you will. Uh, ease of making and use was also a prominent part of how these were sold. In other words, the playback machine became an easy do-it-yourself active tool of making and transformation, brokering ontologies that we tend to think of as televisual, particularly at this time. So just a few uh, final thoughts. Thinking about portability opens up film and media historiography to numerous and largely uncharted paths. These include the film industry's early links to consumer media technologies and its role as a catalyst of an ever-expanding technical base. It also includes the peculiarities of portability for the history of movie images and sounds that ascended on low-tech and small-scale principles distinct from what was really a high-tech architectural dispositif. Portability also invites further consideration of the crucial role of chemistry in media history. It indicates also multiple functions for film technologies. They were business machines, they were industrial machines, they were all kinds of, uh, they were learning machines and so on. Portability also suggests we might know more about the planned adaptability and conveyance of projectors, not just for films, but as multimedial machines, adaptable to a range of performative and presentational scenarios that clearly exceed any, any idea about art or entertainment, or even education for that matter. But what I am uncovering in general here is a long history of a disarticulated apparatus, which was actively rearticulated, often though not only, to other media and institutions. And ultimately, what I hope to have done here for you today is effectively argue for thinking more about the ecologies of small media and the enduring but complex ways in which film can be productively understood as but one element of that plainly dominant common sense. Thank you. Um, we have time for questions and comments, so. It depends how aggressive they get. So Heidi, thanks. It's a terrific paper and uh, amazing project. And the comment and the question. And the comment is, we talked earlier, and I was mentioning the Sears 1898 projectors. And um, you mentioned the freeze function. And it just in listening to your paper, I was thinking there were so many affordances in these really early systems, 1898 systems, like the ability to freeze because it's part of a magic lantern system, that are never really evacuated. They're never evacuated in this domain, whereas the theatrical is conceptually just a different space. So all to say, those continuities really go right back to the start and, and actually a little bit earlier. So comment. Question is. Um, I was, I was really shocked by, I had no idea the numbers of, uh, of non-theatrical, to say it badly, non-theatrical. Uh, tisk tisk. Yeah. <laughs> but what about distribution? What surprises me, for example, that libraries, like I grew up in, you know, next door to the first Carnegie Library, and there was no, they had no, there was no way to rent films in small formats. They had none. So what were the distribution circuits like, uh, given the huge number of, of platforms of, of, of projectors, where did the, con how was the content distributed? Well, I'm surprised to learn that the Carnegie Library did not have a film library because many, many, many public libraries did. Um, so, I mean, like the New York public system was hugely invested in circulating films, I, I believe from the 50s onward. 
Um, school systems had film libraries. All major industrial concerns had uh, nationally located outposts for film distribution. So by the 1950s, they're giving their films away for people to show them for free because they think of it as free public relations. Um, so, and then, and then there were the for-profit film distributors, right? So you can still find, it's easy to find them in libraries and on eBay, uh, blue books and catalogs of films. Kodak had an international system of film rentals. Department stores rented films. They were, they were kind of everywhere. I mean, they were, they were, it was expansive. And then just to follow, you mentioned that these were early adapters in terms of safety film theater, uh, the theatrical circuit shifted from nitrate later. Could that be because, of the, because postage was then the main mode of distribution and postage regulation was stronger as opposed to private shipping companies? Would that be the driver? So um, getting a film from one place to another uh, is complicated and flammability was crucial. Um, to, to ship a film required a little bit like my portable booth story analogous to that would be the shipping situation, right? So to ship a flammable film, there were rules and regulations about how thick the lead lining had to be and so on. So it, it, it probably quadrupled the weight of the film to keep it in a can that would contain any flammable eruptions, let's call them. Um, so yes, acetate also facilitated the easier movement of films in general and you could ship them by mail, which, which also creates like delicious opportunities, right? Because then you have informal networks possible where you can, you can ship any title you want once it's on acetate to anybody through the mail. So you can see how this probably significantly benefited pornographic, stag films, anything remotely clandestine or political or controversial suddenly found a circuit because of that ship. So it was hugely important. Um, this, a quick anecdote. So I'm from Detroit, and uh, my friend bought the Jam Handy building. What? And so yeah, it was, <laughs> it was in disrepair, and so he bought it, and now it's a, a venue space. Uh, but we found some old reels, and so they actually found <laughs> some portable reels that were used for um, Ford, and, and they dispatched some salesmen, and they <laughs> equipped them with these small projectors and reels to go out and do like car sales after World War II to try to jumpstart the economy. And it was actually like a national fund. So that's, yeah. if you're ever interested, the Jam Handy and the Detroit Historical Museum have some really interesting field reels from mm -hmm. the Jam Handy back in the day, right after the war. Um, secondly, um, similar to William's question, uh, I'm really curious, because I, I worked up at the uh, Ann Arbor 16 millimeter film festival um, originally, and there was, we, we were, I was there when we transitioned to accepting other things beyond 16 millimeter. And so I'm curious in your- um, What year was that, just uh, out of curiosity? 2000, it was a slow process. It was 03 to 05. Okay. Um, and, so, uh, and so I'm curious, it's like in, in that projector, you said I think in 1980, there were about 1,000 to 1 projectors. So I'm curious, like, do, do you go into a breakdown of 16 millimeter versus even some of the, oh, the 8 millimeter, um, the at-home uses, and like how, how, how that sort of impacts this idea of like portability um, when the, the you know, at-home film becomes a thing. And then also, at what point does it become, I don't want to say novelty, but perhaps it's like very specific. Like I remember our director was like, 16 millimeter is its own you know, thing. We should not take 35, we should not take eight millimeter, et cetera, et cetera. So at what point does this world of these projectors go beyond sort of functionality to like sort of specific either novelty or like creative choice? And do you see that reflected in the ways the you know, those thousand projectors are distributed. 
sorry. That's okay. That was just a lot of questions. Um, uh, the pictogram. Let's talk. This. I'll, I'll say a little bit about that because that's a little bit easier to answer because it's a factual um, thing. So um, f far more eight than sixteen. So what happens is 16 becomes a more institutional gauge, if you will, and 8 becomes an everyday uh, consumer format, which is not to say that the line was hard and fast, but the, the, the ratio is probably something like, uh, I don't know, I'm going to guess something like 6 to 1 or something like that, 6, 8 to the 1, 16. So they were they were cheaper, um, they were uh, smaller. Like back to portability, they moved easily. They were sold as as toys, uh, as hobbyists' delight, and so so those are really the numbers that I need to look at next because it, it's it's quite astronomical. It's also important to say that institutions had 16 and 8 as well. So 16 at a certain point, you could project to larger audiences, and they became at a certain point. Portability as a metaphor fails because once there were theaters with 16 millimeter projectors installed, which is no longer portable anymore in that same sense that it was so radically powerful early on. So I'm confessing that it's a it's a it's a, a scratch on the surface of the the argument I'm trying to make. Um, so it, it, all of the nuances that you're pointing to be become the next stage of doing a, a more close analysis of how they break down, right? Um, your question about how do you know if it was a novelty or... Well, just when did it transition, right? So of these thousand, right, that might be broken down between 8, 16, and even maybe 35 in some cases. Yeah. Just at what point do we start seeing a shift kind of like before we hit video? where it becomes this, like, I don't know, specific artistic... Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. I think that probably happens very early. Um, Erica Balsam is doing a lot of interesting work on brackage, like the key canonical experimental filmmakers in the 60s. And when someone like Peter Kubelka will still only allow his films to show on 16. Um, so I, I think medium specificity strangely settles in for a small subset fairly early on. Um, but it, I would argue that, that that's one element of the way settlements occur and the small gauge becomes its own art form. That was an important um, moment for experimental artists who were very devoted to that, to that small gauge medium and, and made it into something that was very specific to its, its size, its capacities, right? its weaknesses, its flaws, and they made that into something else. So the way I would go with that is to is to look at those practices in that context and see, yeah, what did they do with this machine or that machine or Super 8 versus, right? And think through how, how that was transformed in the context of an invigorated art practice and also a distribution practice. Like someone like Brackage um, wanted to uh, create a distribution system so that everybody anywhere could buy experimental films and have them to watch again. So a lot, a lot of the importance of the, um, the growth of the, of the platform, if you will, or the, the technological capacity here is also about control over viewing. And to, to watch something again was a novel idea, right? You, you could go to the theater again, I suppose, but it's not the same thing as clicking a button and watching it three times or stopping it on a single frame. 
So that it, it transforms what knowledge you can make from move, moving images if you can steal them when you want and watch them repeatedly. So this, this is the technical infrastructure that enables that. Um, yeah, yeah, okay. I think there was, oh, here and then over here. Great talk, thank you so much. Um, I'm really taken by the photos, the radio reporting. <laughs> that technology is the projection of the image and is that what makes it what it is because at the same time I'm thinking how much that object that you just showed us looks it, it kind of better defines what my phone is than most other things I still call it a phone but most of what I do with it is um, a photo cine radiate <laughs> right and so I, I'm just curious about what makes what makes it is it the projection that makes it still that or you mean you mean is, is, it, the, is this the, a film technology sort of, yeah this right. portability of media is so vital to what you're talking about but I guess I guess I'm just curious about whether or not what this all is 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 really just is also the parent to mobile the mobile media Yes, I don't know how to answer that. Yeah. Um, I mean, because there, there's a couple of questions there's buried there. Like, like one is like, when does one medium become another? Or when is it no longer film, but we need some other definition? Like maybe this is radio, but it grew a film wing or like, um, I, I, I'm not, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not, I keep moving this. I'm not sure how to start to think about that. Um, I mean, as you might guess, I, I, like my primary polemic is cinema has long been hybrid, and here's a great example of that. And, and look at here's another, but I don't know when to not call it cinema anymore. I've been pushed from both ends. Um, I've got a, a, another part of this chat, part of the project is uh, military film equipment, and the military was really big on rear projection devices. So, so was industry. There are all kinds of examples of, basically they look like, um, jukeboxes or consoles. They look like TVs, really. But they're film. They rear project. The, the projector's just behind. You know, and uh, they emit light rather than reflect. And um, uh, a very prominent film scholar, who I shall not name, just said, well, why isn't this just TV? And i like, well, it's because it's celluloid. It's projected. It was made with a camera. It, like, I, I, th I think it's film. Maybe it's not cinema in the sense of um, a distinctive art form. Uh, modernist art or like if we go to that those kinds of definitions but it sure is film um, but I don't know how many how many appendages does it have to have before the word needs to change that's a great question I'm not really sure first of all I thank you for evoking a little bit of nostalgia elementary school and the school board issued projectors and I just love not so much the content of what was being screened, but the clatter of the projector itself. I love the sound. And at the end of the film, as it, the spool spun off, I, was, I would wait for that. You know, that was my favorite part of it. Um, so thank you for that. But as you're talking about portability, I'm thinking about you know, the way things become portable when they're not supposed to, institutionally or otherwise. And I'm thinking about thievery and piracy, right? Yeah. Things put into motion 
that are supposed to remain under some sort of um, authority or, or whatever, you know. So in the de-theatricalization, was there or were there cases of piracy that started emerging, of people, you know, distributing things outside of the, you know, the, uh, the, the authorized distribution methods? And is that something that comes up, you know, as these um, home units proliferate? Um, I, I think the, the answer to that has to be yes. Um, well, w William was telling me a great anecdote earlier about, um, particularly in the early, early period, where there would just be uh, imitators, right? You, you don't need to see the Lumiere train arriving at the station. My cousin Bob shot it down the street for, and you can have it for half price. So there's that kind of thing. Um, so just imitators. Um, and I'm sure that there were dupes and copies circulated illegally, but it's, as you might guess, it's a very difficult thing to track. Um, so I'm not, I'm not quite sure how to, how to do that yet, but I'm sure it's the case. And of course, these, um, you know, it's called underground cinema for a reason. There were all kinds of examples of using 8 and 16 in order to challenge censorship laws and show, show material to, to queer audiences or black audiences or like so that the police wouldn't catch you or maybe so that they would catch you. And, um, so it, it enabled all kinds of informal circuits that were, um, they didn't necessarily need to be pirated to be dangerous um, or subversive. Um, and, then, and then the history of dubbing, I'm, 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 sh I'm sure, right? Because suddenly you can just hand off a print. If you have the apparatus, you can just show it. Whereas if you need a movie theater, it's a little harder because you got to break in, right? You, like it's, 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 it's an obstruction that is very difficult to overcome. So the machine itself opened up a whole, a whole other way of engaging with projection um, that, that now requires us to ask these kinds of questions about informal economies that predate video, essentially. Um, it's totally different. Hi. Hi. Nice um, to see you. I'm really particularly fascinated by, uh, I've never heard this before, the idea of a sound recording uh, device with the projector so, you, so the kind of viewing self could sort of inscribe themselves onto the film. I mean, this is a really fascinating idea. And I'm kind of wondering, in your looking at the advertising and the way these are marketed, is the assumption that this is going to be for home movies or that this is this sort of expansive authorship of being able to rewrite kind of text that other people have made? I mean, what's your sense of this? From what I've seen, it's, it's, um, it's not sold to artists or like, it's not a mashup, make your own movie and uh, stick it to the man. And, um, though that it would be used that way, I, I'm sure that it, it could have been and was. Um, in most of the literature that I've seen, it's, it's a business machine. So like the military, for instance, used them to make multilingual versions of their, of their training films. Um, that would be a good example of that. Or the propaganda films. So uh, as an occupying force in the 50s in Korea, they would, you know, they could change the language of a film and it, would, it made it easier for them to repurpose um, film. So that would be one example. Um, the, this, this kind of crazy ad with the, um, this, this is um, more of a business tool, right? Um, and I, it's, it's, it's quite clear that um, film was a standard business tool like like typewriters, like photocopiers, um, that it, it was a part of a presentational apparatus as much as it was a sales pitch, as much as it was an organizational tool, operations, efficiency, management, all that stuff was all there. So I think any time that you're talking about international business, and if, 
it becomes salient in the 50s for obvious reasons. Um, you can imagine the ways in which um, films were being dubbed uh, as part of a um, post-war, uh, uh, I guess we would say neoliberal now, uh, Pax Americana, right? So thinking about all the war, rebuilding, uh, the modernizing of infrastructure in Africa, all that kind of stuff, that these kinds of tools became tools that made them more effective. So I, I, I've never seen any bottom-up stuff for this, but uh, it doesn't mean it's not there. It just means... Well, um, I'm going to forget his name. Um, historian of Sound has done a little bit of work on um, records of film sounds, or records of sound effects that you, can use, you could use, you could imagine. I, uh, I think that they were primarily designed to be played alongside a film. But with something like this, you can then, you can then imagine taking one sound and putting it at a very particular place. And so on. So, and you could strip a whole movie if you wanted to add sound effects. So those would have been silent during this period. No, that's super interesting. Thank you. Yeah. Jake. Yeah. So, uh, one, I'd love to thank you for the uh, the idea that not catching fire is an element of key. Element <laughs> of the that's a fascinating sort of intervention. I don't think I've ever considered portability outside the case of you know, can I move it? It, the limit of like, can I move it without it exploding? But I think it's really useful. So I'm curious, when it comes to sort of more expansive ideas about portability and what shapes that, can we understand audiences or people as ports? And if so, have <laughs> creators ever talked about creating for audiences in terms of portability? I'm not sure what to do with the can an audience be thought of as a port. I guess if you um, I'm not sure what to do with that, but let me say this. Um, there is a long history of media and transportation, for instance, of uh, like using like in India, um, where the train stopped was very important, and cinema often came on the train and then appeared and then went away to the next station, for instance. So in, in that sense, that overlap between movement, in that case, m much more me mechano-industrial, um, was crucial for creating audiences that were bound by a hub of transportation. And train stations, airports, uh, port towns, all have that kind of contact zone aspect to them, right? Because they draw people from many places of different ilks into this, this site um, that is constituted by movement, the movement of the transportation device, whatever that is. So in that sense, I, I think the answer is yes. I'm not sure. I, I guess what I'm tripping on is humans as ports. Um, I'm just not sure what to do with that exactly. Um, did, did you have an idea? Like, a, what, where would that take us if we went down that road? Where, I'm ready to play. I just don't know what game. I think there game. are David Cronenberg films. That <laughs> yeah. At least two, one or two. Um, existence and Videodrome. Yeah. Um, especially Existence. But um, I think it's an interesting thought. I guess to, to, to sort of make that more actionable or specific. Yeah. So I'm thinking on airplanes when you're flying from the Middle East, for example, your film will be edited to be more conservative in terms of sexual dynamics, 
representation of women. There's some, there's some conscious choices film creators make, even just to release, to port pretty physically, to audiences in specific areas. And that's something that's going to happen again and again. Games, rating systems, violence and blood. Yeah. Games will often recolor blood it's from red to green, for example. So now it's not blood, it's just, you know, life good. Yeah. These kind of choices are allowed to be released in places in Europe which have a stricter sense of what's yeah. sort of different sensibilities. So, so, so yeah. creators have clearly been shaping things for sensibilities in terms sure. of how they move their product. And I'm curious if the rhetoric of portability, so we use localization oftentimes, that's the sort of modern trope. <coughs> but I'm curious, like, have people ever explicitly discussed it as portability when they're talking about shaping for audience cultural, social sensibilities? Do you mean, do you mean what is the historical um, ten, uh, hold of the concept of portability? So I've, I've, this is, I've taken this concept and tried to tell a coherent story about a technological shift. So that, it's, it's my term. The term was used um, one of the reasons I start where I start is because as the movie theater rises, they call, they say, I want to, we, we need a portable device and this, this is what it might look like. So it is used and then some, and then it fades. So it's not used throughout to describe that infrastructure. But back to your other question, I, th I think the idea of an, yes, an apparatus that was not in a building, but could travel, could be purchased, could be taken out of a closet. Um, could be set up on demand, yes, that created a different approach to what films mean. Now, if your question is, were Hollywood films being cut to be good for the church set? Or um, the truth probably is films have always been cut that way. Like, it, like that didn't start with video. Films have always been cut. They were much easier to cut, in fact. So um, I think the answer is yes, but I, I, don't, I don't know the whole history of that. Right. The other thing that happens with the shift to home, Kodak had a very uh, elaborate international system of film libraries. They reduced, you could buy anthologized versions of Ben-Hur or like, you could buy one hour versions of three hour films and they were cut down to real length so they could ship more efficiently to service this market. So maybe that gets a little bit of what you were talking about, how they decided what to cut. You'd have to go title by title and, and take a look. but. I'm sure that the kinds of considerations you have in mind were pertinent for that as well. Thank you. You're welcome. I, I think I'm just gonna I'm gonna ask a question and then go to David and then we'll probably wrap up pretty soon. Uh, but I, just the, building on this conversation, I I really like how the concept of portability when we think about it in relation to to media history and as you've done in particular to look at uh, projection technology, also challenges us to think about the, the, the relations of weight, um, morphology, and interoperability, and how the industry tries to manage those categories to, to reach as many audiences as possible. So both in the theater, there are per particular kinds of weight and interoperability and um, morphology in terms of the projection apparatus, and then as it moves out of the theater, those relations change. And there's a simultaneity to these things happening too. So they're, 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 you know, the industry is, is, is sort of, subsidiary industries are forming so that it can become more movable, mm -hmm. and maneuverable too. And I, I just think it's really evocative for thinking about different ways of 
doing media historiography. Mm -hmm. So thinking about, um, you know, weight, the history of weight in media yeah. as, a, as a challenge and how that shift has, has really changed so that we think about the port, not just in terms of the portable projector, but in terms of the body. The whole thing, yeah. yeah. Um, I was rereading some of the work on agit trains, the Soviet agit trains in the 20s. And it, it, it's really fascinating because if you think about it through this lens, it's like the cinematic apparatus required a train and a truck that traveled in the train. So they, they moved around and there was a little hotel in there. They lived on the train. So it's like it's a, an entirely different way to think about, um, like, you know, when is it not cinema but something else? I don't know. But we do know that these things existed and they operated in this complex way. Um, oh, you've really made me reconsider what I think of as the medium of film. Uh, so that's <laughs> uh, but just to go back to that notion of portability, which is just uh, expressed very well some of the issues there. But um, I just wondered how much of well, it seems to me that the domestic business education split is important mm -hmm. in, in different sectors of this vast non cinema world of film, uh, <laughs> and within the home, the domestic market. How much is portability really a, a kind of synonym for, or a marketing term for affordability? Yeah. Um, because it, it seems to me that that kind of the availability, the, the widespread nature of it, really derives from cheapness. Um, yeah. So this might be a point at which my ridiculous sea of machines, my pictogram does a slight disservice to the wide variety of projectors available. Um, because some were, were inexpensive and affordable and others were, in today's language, thousands of dollars. So not, not, not quite available to um, the average family. So I think you'd, one would have to think through that. Um, and I think fundamentally the, the, re the relative nature of the concept does require a little burrowing down. So to think through, well, yes, it's, it's, aff it's affordable compared to buying a building, um, but it's not affordable compared to um, a, a, a stereo, uh, a handheld stereo opticon or, you know, so that it, it would need to be done in articulation with other kinds of media devices and uh, their, their affordances, their weights. Um, and how to go through that. So I think portability in some instances means affordability and in other instances it, it, it's not quite right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think unless anybody has a burning question, I think we'll wrap up. Thank you so much.